Hello and welcome to Voicebox, your weekly guide on public radio and podcast to the art of the human voice and the best of the vocal music scene. I'm Chloe Veltman and it's great to be here with you once again. In January 2011, former Arizona Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords was critically injured by a gunshot wound to the head during an assassination attempt while she was meeting constituents at a supermarket near Tucson. The wound to the left side of her head left Giffords unable to speak. But thanks to surgery and the amazing power of song, she has since been able to recover her words. Here's part of a story reported by ABC's Bob Woodruff close to a year after Gifford's injury. Today, for the first time since her injury, Congresswoman Gabby Giffords released a special message to her constituents. Representing Arizona is my honor. A transformation that began nine months ago when she could barely respond. Can you smile, sweetie? Oh, that's not a smile. <laughs> because she was injured in the left side of the brain, where speech is controlled, her words had abandoned her. What's the matter? Yes. In this emotionally charged moment, she sang the words she couldn't speak, a key to her amazing recovery. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. If you've just joined us, welcome. I'm Chloe Veltman, and this is Voicebox, public radio's weekly show all about singing. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes. We just listened to an excerpt of an ABC television news story reported by Bob Woodruff late in 2011 about former Arizona Congresswoman Gabrielle Gifford's recovery process following an attempt on her life the previous January that left the politician with severe injuries to her brain. As we heard, by reconnecting with her singing voice, Gifford was able to recover her power of speech. The fact is that the connection between our musical selves and our brains is extremely powerful, and on tonight's Voice Box, we're going to explore this link with the help of two wonderful, knowledgeable guests. On the phone, we're lucky to be joined by Dr. Conchetta Tomeno, who heads up the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function, a New York-based facility that conducts research into and applies music therapy. The Institute has been at the forefront of the field for more than three decades. Hi, Connie. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thanks so much, Chloe. Pleasure to be here. Meanwhile, joining us in the studio here in San Francisco is Dr. Indre Viscontas. Indre is in the rarefied position of being both a neuroscientist affiliated with the University of California, San Francisco, and a professional classically trained soprano. Welcome, Indre. It's great to have you here. Hello. I'm delighted to be here. Connie, let me turn to you first. Please tell us a bit about the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function. What do you do? The Institute was incorporated in 1995, and it's an outgrowth of both my clinical work and the work of Dr. Oliver Sacks, the neurologist and author, who originally wrote about music and the people in awakenings, the post-encephalitic folks with Parkinson's-like symptoms. Uh, He and I, since 1980, had worked together closely here at... um, what was called Beth Abraham Family of Health Services. It's now Centralite Health System in New York City. Um, We saw early on the amazing effects of music and the capability of music to reach people who seemed to be unreachable, people who had strokes, um, who had lost their speech, people with Parkinson's disease. 
that couldn't walk um, on their own. And because of our interest and because of the support of the administration, we were encouraged to start the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function as a way to bridge the fields of neuroscience and clinical music therapy um, under one umbrella to really forward uh, the understanding, our understanding of how and why music works as a clinical tool. So early on in the 90s, we had uh, received some funding that helped fund some basic science studies in auditory perception that was done at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Um, but then as we realized that there was very little research in the clinical aspects of music therapy, we decided to focus a lot of our work in the past 10 years on different applications, clinical applications of music for a broad host of problems like speech rehabilitation, like uh, motor recovery after stroke and traumatic brain injury. So very similar to what you were just uh, sh sharing with the audience about Gabby Giffords recovery is well, the type of work that we do and why the Institute is here. Can you tell us a bit about Gabby Giffords case? Tell us why she was able to recover her speech through singing. What's well, that about? You know what's really interesting is um, it's probably been over 100 years now that clinical cases of people who have something uh, that's referred to as non-fluent aphasia. That's what uh, Gabriella Gifford has. Aphasia is a, a problem where people have injury to the left part of their brain. It's an area called Broca's region. And in these particular patients, they understand what's being said to them, but they can't retrieve the words that they need to speak and communicate with other people. So over 100 years ago, uh, it was noted, and, and since then, that people with non-fluent aphasia, even though they can't speak independently, will be found singing happy birthday or uh, mm. being able to recite prayers and things that are overlearned and have a very rhythmic rhyming um, pattern to them seem to be still preserved, even though the person can't speak independent new phrases. So the understanding for so many years was that this was a separate function and an independent ability that had absolutely nothing to do with speech. And so neurologists um, refer to it as, uh, as an aberration, you know, just because the person can sing doesn't mean they'll ever speak again. And no treatment, no musical-based treatment was ever created up until um, Helms and Sparks looked at something that they developed called melodic intonation therapy and started uh, using a, a melodic contour and rhythm tapping, rhythmic tapping, as a tool to help people with non-fluent aphasia recover speech. And as in their clinical cases, they started to see the carryover when this sing-song type uh, repetitive speech training was done, including rhythmic patterns and intonation. In my clinical work and in, in other music therapists' uh, work, we saw that when people use singing, songs singing familiar lyrics, that that too can work as a priming tool or precursor to recovery of speech. But the, the trick in both of these interventions is the repetition and the consistency. You know, when the brain gets damaged, and even when the brain is developing in young children, um, the importance of repetition is crucial for us to learn new things or to acquire or reacquire a habit or ability. So any, anybody who's recovering from an injury, like a, a speech 
problem really needs to have some kind of treatment that has lots of repetition, lots of consistency, um, that takes advantage of preserved mechanisms in the brain. In this case, we're taking advantage of the singing ability that's still available to the person because that's dominant in the right hemisphere, but shares uh, networks and informational loops with conversational speech. So by us using um, a sing-song type patterning or singing of lyrics, we can actually stimulate word retrieval in such clients. Thanks for that, Connie. Indre, let me ask you, as someone who straddles the world of neuroscience and singing, can you explain to me why it should be that the brain is so closely connected to song? I mean, isn't it counterintuitive in a way that a person who has suffered trauma and lost their speech should regain it through singing? I mean, you'd think that speaking would be easier than singing for someone to do. After all, singing involves pitch and rhythm in a much more explicit way than speech does, doesn't it? Absolutely. But I think you've come up to something that's really important, and that is that pitch and rhythm are really part of the key factors here. And I think um, pitch and rhythm are something that there's a lot of different parts of the brain that process those capacities. Um, in particular, there's a part of the brain now that we know called the cerebellum, um, which seems to be very important in, t- in terms of fine-tuning motor um, capabilities and also sort of keeping track of timing. Um, there, there are multiple clocks in the brain. Um, and some of these are much more primitive than our speech centers, which evolved relatively late com- in comparison. So it makes sense to me if you're tapping into this circuit um, that is more kind of primitive uh, and it's hard it's 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 also represented in maybe different parts of the brain not just one part of the brain um, that you're going to be able to rewire the language circuits um, in a way that you wouldn't be if you just were focusing on this relatively new part of the brain, um, the neocortex, which is where the language is centered. Um, so what you're trying to do, I think, is get into that and, and, and try to get those connections um, to either adapt or reform uh, in other parts of the brain by using uh, th- you know, these sort of more primitive areas um, and areas that are already fairly well uh, established. I think music is, is, is essentially emotional and uh, the one sees very clearly with people who have amnesia that the stronger the emotional stimulus, the, the better the memory. Uh, in a sense, I think this is magical. You see frozen people who can suddenly, suddenly move and dance. You see amnesic people who can suddenly remember and sort of come to emotionally. This is Voicebox with me, your host, Chloe Veltman. Don't forget, you can download our free podcast each week on iTunes. Search under KALW Voicebox. I'm chatting with music therapist Connie Tomeno and neuroscientist Indre Viscontis, who's also a professional singer, about the amazing relationship between the field of neuroscience and the human voice. The clip we just heard uh, was created by the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function, which is... Connie heads up and it featured the voice of Oliver Sacks who was uh, instrumental in founding the institute with Connie. Um, Oliver Sacks is just one of a growing number of scientists immersed in research on music and the brain. Indra, you've been closely following the research of a number of leading lights in the field. Can you give us a, a brief overview of some of the biggest names in the music neuroscience space and their core research interests? Sure, absolutely. So there's um, a centre in Montreal, actually, um, that is 
partly based in McGill, partly based at the University of Montreal, um, called the Brahms Center. It's the Brain Music and Sound Research Center. And so a lot of great work comes out of that uh, facility. But um, I would say probably the most famous uh, neuroscience of music person so far is um, Daniel Levitin, who is also um, part of this facility. He started out as a session musician and a record uh, producer, a sound engineer. And then um, over time, he decided that he wanted to go back and do a PhD in neuroscience. And so his approach really is about um, what can timing, you know, tell us about not only the brain, but, you know, how we understand uh, the way that the, the music is um, represented, but also can influence us in many different ways. So he's actually really known for showing that the cerebellum, this region that I was talking about earlier, um, is involved in a lot of different musical processes and that pulse and rhythm um, and defying expectations are sort of key components of how we listen to music and how it affects our brains. Um, he also coined the Levitin effect, which is the fact that people tend to remember music in the correct key, hmm. um, which is kind of interesting. It goes against this idea that we don't have an absolute pitch and that we're not very good at, at You mean like pitch. nearly always everyone starts to sing happy birthday on the same note? Correct. Or, you know, I mean, that one has a lot of different um, instantiations, but say like a, a very famous song that is really only played by one person in one oh, key. I see. People will remember that in, in the correct key. Um, one of his colleagues is Robert Zatori, who comes from an auditory processing background. He's really, um, he started his, his career really looking at how we process sounds in general and then moved on more into musical sounds. Um, and he really is, has been one of the giants in the neuroimaging of music. Uh, so looking at the brain uh, while a person is listening to music or playing music or imagining music and seeing what's happening in the brain. Um, and he also uh, sort of tries to see what's different between musicians and non-musicians or people who have a lot of musical experience with people who don't. Um, then Isabel Peretz uh, is, is uh, also really studies, um, one of her cool studies is the causes of poor singing. Why are people bad <laughs> at singing? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it turns out that it's more a function of poor motor control rather than that they can't hear uh, properly. Huh. And so those are all the Canadians. Let's, there's one American that really stands out for me, um, and that's Diana Deutsch mm -hmm. at uh, UCSD. And she has really been at the forefront of um, you know what? What is the line between speech and uh, singing and and music? And and she's done a wonderful work um, at at sort of observing different illusions in sound, which I always find fascinating. So um, these researchers, some of them, especially Levitin, have achieved mainstream prominence. Um, I mean, there are these, all these famous books that a lot of people have read. For example, Oliver Sacks' Music Ophelia and, and This Is Your Brain on Music by Daniel Levitin. So Connie and Indre, why has this area of scientific study become so trendy in recent times? And how do you explain the proliferation of, of the neuroscience of music studies in recent years? Well, if I, if I can go first, I know that when, when Dr. Sachs and I years ago were trying to get neuroscientists to study music, they said they couldn't, that it was hmm. too complex a stimulus. Um, the scientists that we worked with back in the late 80s were just still processing clicks and beeps oh. in auditory cortex. So, you know, what's happened, um, some things have happened par in parallel. One of them is that the imaging, um, to be able to image a brain in real time, has opened up the possibilities of studying responses to something as complex as sound and music. The other, the other piece is that music represents an area of complex uh, stimulus processing because music itself is a combination of, of many different um, 
pieces of information, like you mentioned before, there's rhythm and there's harmony and there's melody. Um, all of those aspects together make up music as we understand it. So the areas of cognitive neuroscience that are looking at complex processing um, have also gained an interest in understanding how and why how and where music is processed in the brain to break down some of those mechanisms from a neurological point of view. And then the other piece is that uh, because music does tap into some of those older parts, more resilient parts of the brain like the cerebellum, um, basal ganglia, other areas that are precursors to movement and speech, um, and because of the neuroimaging techniques, we're able to look at where are the origins of these musical responses in the brain in real time, and that can be translated, or hopefully soon, will be translated into more effective music-based uh, treatments that we can use in music therapy. So even though the music therapists have been around, you know, we've as a profession, we've been around since the late 40s, early 50s, it's only the science of recent days that gives us a window to look into the brain as people are responding to music and helping us uh, validate techniques that we've used over the years, but validated in a way that can be backed by real science. So would you say that this field is in its infancy right now? Or? It still is. I, I, I'm sure uh, you'll agree as well that uh, people are just starting to understand these mechanisms. The field of cognitive neuroscience and music, I guess, is probably around 15 years old if, in, in, in the volume of materials that's being published. Uh, Robert Satori and, and Maziada and people who were looking at music-based perception have been doing it for many, many years, but it's only in the past 10, 15 years that it's come to prominence, and with books like Dan Levitin's book has come to public prominence. Try singing it. I'm sorry? What songs do you know? Sing it. Then she wouldn't feed me far, far away. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook. And please download our free weekly podcasts by visiting voicebox-media.org or iTunes. Music therapist and head of the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function, Connie Tomeno, is joining us from New York over the phone. And Indre Viscontas, a San Francisco-based neuroscientist and singer, is with me in the studio. We're discussing the relationship between singing and the brain. Many of you will recognize the clip I just played. It comes from the brilliant 2010 movie, The King's Speech. In the scene, Lionel Logue, a speech therapist played by Jeffrey Rush, attempts to get his stammering and deeply unhappy patient, King George VI, played by Colin Firth, to talk about his difficult childhood. When the king can't get his words out, the therapist asks him to sing them. As a result of the film, King George VI will probably go down in history as one of the great music therapy success stories. But this is Hollywood after all, so we wouldn't be blamed for being sceptical about the power of singing to bring about such startling results in the monarch's speaking skills. Connie and Indre, I'd be curious to hear your take on the King's speech. Should we be sceptical? How much of a role did singing really play in rehabilitating the King's speech? No, I don't know exactly what the original speech therapist did with the king, but I can tell you that um, many people in that have speech impediments, people who stammer, 
uh, like the king, uh, are able to sing very well. And it's, again, because of the recruitment of the timing element, the um, sort of chunking or fluidity at which somebody sings a phrase rather than tries to speak it, that helps, um, I would say, disinhibit, and maybe Andre could could reinforce that, to um, disinhibit the, the bad skill or the impaired skill uh, with something that is uh, available to them. Uh, I know that James Earl Jones, when he, the actor, when he was in school, had a very um, bad stuttering problem. Hmm. And his teacher, one of his early teachers, told him to recite poetry as a way to improve his, his speech. And of course, we know what happened with him. <laughs> a king's time as ruler rises and falls like the sun. Indra, is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, so I'm by no means an expert on um, stuttering itself or what the brain mechanisms are of it, but certainly it seems to me that there's at least a component of it that is an in initiation problem, that it's starting uh, a new, that new kind of motor activity that is the, the challenge. And what we know both from neuroimaging um, and from sort of studies of patients with Parkinson's disease, for example, is that if you can go directly into sort of the basal ganglia, which is the part of the brain that we've been talking about that has a lot of excitatory and inhibitory circuits that act um, in sort of very complex ways. If you can get at it and sort of reset it, then you can have this new complex motor skill come out or, or the one that you're trying to achieve, this complex set of, of motor behaviors. Um, what's interesting from brain imaging that we've seen in, in when people are listening to music, um, oftentimes they can you know, go right into this circuit and bypass the sort of, you know, more executive or effortful or conscious part of the brain, which is the prefrontal cortex. Um, so if you can quiet down the prefrontal cortex and go into this other memory system um, directly, then you can have this sort of more ballistic movement again and get that kind of flow that you want. Oftentimes, these two sort of memory systems where you have um, sort of the habit learning system or the more kind of what we call declarative or conscious memory system, they can act in competition with each other for, for your cognitive resources. So if you can pit one, give one a bit of a head start um, and you know, then get the movement going, then, then you can probably achieve some really you know, great results. Um, so that seems to me that when people are singing, they are shutting down their prefrontal cortex in a way, getting it out of the way so that they can just do what they know they can do, this um, series of complex motor behaviors that they can do in, in, a, you know, in one fell swoop. Well, let's turn our attention now to the techniques that uh, you employ in your work at the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function, Connie. Um, we're going to play a couple of clips. Can you tell us a bit about what we're going to hear? Sure. Well, in the one with Pat, in this, in this situation where she's a person with aphasia who uh, could only, at this point in her treatment, could only say okay, and she wasn't using words effectively at all, but when we put normal phrases like how are you or what are you doing today in this context of a familiar melody, she could repeat them very well. Now, we know with many people with aphasia, they can always repeat phrases that are said to them. In this case, we're trying to get her to sing the phrases, and then you don't hear it in this example, but later on in the treatment would take the melody away from the familiar song 
uh, so that she could just utter the phrases independently. And so it was a, a way to use a skill that was very available to the individual mm-hmm. um, so they can hear their voice and, and see that they can actually sing these words to build up that kind of confidence so that it could be carried over. And then in the one, Where Is My Pillow?, um, Another speech problem that people with traumatic brain injury or stroke or different types of neurologic diseases like multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's, it's a problem called dysarthria, and that's the motor planning aspect of speech. And for the res- uh, patients that we had in this particular study that we did, uh, they had all maxed out at three syllables of intelligible speech, meaning that mm-hmm. by the time they hit the third syllable, they lost their breath support or their articulation faulted, so they couldn't really communicate effectively. In that particular group of, of patients, we found that just the rhythmic, uh, similar, to, very similar to melodic intonation therapy, but in this case, just slowing down um, the phrases and placing them to rhythm uh, was a way of getting them to in- increase their intelligibility. And in this particular pilot study that we did, we had them going from three syllables of intelligible speech up to 19 syllables, and that carried over hmm. outside of the, the therapy center, uh, session. So uh, the first one is using a familiar phrase, in the, uh, but using a, a familiar melody to um, frame that phrase so the patient with aphasia can sing the words in the context of the musical phrase. And then the second example is using uh, the rhythmic contour and pacing of music to enhance speech intelligibility in somebody with dysarthria. Let's listen now. Deep breath. Hello, hello, how are you today? Very good, very good. And then the response to that would be, to the tune of East Side, West Side, I'm okay. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? You're tuned into Voicebox with me, your host, Chloe Veltman. Don't forget that you can download Voicebox as a free weekly podcast on iTunes. Just search for KALW Voicebox. And don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook. On tonight's show, we're looking at the magical link between singing and the brain. Music therapist and head of the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function, Connie Tomeno, is joining us from New York over the phone. And Indre Viscontas, a San Francisco-based neuroscientist and singer, is with us in the studio. We just heard two examples of Connie's use of singing to help patients regain their ability to speak. So obviously these therapies are very powerful and you achieve pretty startling results. Can you tell us about any unsuccessful attempts you've had to restore people's vocal powers? Sure. One of, one of the things um, that we found, and it, has to, it deals with the fact that motor function and speech are very closely connected, 
is that somebody who's had a, a left side stroke, so left part of their brain has been damaged to the stroke, um, but that damage also has involved the motor strip in the brain, um, those people tend not to do well with the melodic type of intonation therapy or the singing therapy. And it's because the timing aspect of speech or the ability to tap along with the music has been damaged as well. So in our assessment, if the person cannot tap along with the music uh, and that timing sense has been damaged, it's a good indicator to us that that person is going to have trouble with this technique and would not uh, improve because of singing. So it, we know that there's certain brain areas um, that when they are damaged do affect the person's ability to use music. I could while away the hours conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. And my head I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. I'd unravel every riddle for any individual in trouble or in pain. With the thoughts you'd be thinking you could be another Lincoln if you only had a brain. We're exploring the link between human singing abilities and the burgeoning field of neuroscience with Indre Viscontas, a San Francisco-based neuroscientist and singer who's with us in the studio and on the phone, music therapist and head of the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function in New York, Connie Tomeno. I thought we could change gears a bit now and talk a bit about your dual career as a singer and neuroscientist, Indre. Can you tell us how you came to occupy these two quite different roles? Sure. Well, from the time I was a child, I, I loved singing. My mother was a choral conductor and she always made me sing. And um, when I was 11, I was in my first opera with the Canadian Opera Company. I was an altar boy in Tosca. <laughs> and I just remember like it was so much fun to get into costume and get out on stage and, um, you know, fight around with all the other boys in front of like thousands of people. And then one night someone actually handed me a check and it was more money than I'd ever seen. <laughs> and so I just thought this must be paradise if you can get paid to to you know, do so much, so many fun things. So I decided, well, I want to do whatever I can to get there. Um, but a little bit later in my life, I actually read uh, Dr. Sachs's work, and he was very influential uh, on on my sort of development as a you know as a person. And I thought he just really touched on something human and in his work that I had to learn more about. And um, so that got me started in in the psychology realm. But I. I've, I'm a bit pig-headed, and I always wanted to do everything <laughs> that I could. Mm -hmm. So I kind of figured, well, if I do a PhD in cognitive neuroscience and I do well at it, um, I can still sing, and I can still somehow bring these dreams of performing to light. And I, I never really knew exactly how they would end up um, coming together into a career, but I knew I always needed to do both at a very high level. And so I've continued to do that, and my life has taken a lot of really wonderful left turns, um, but that's how I came to be here. Tell us very briefly about the work you've been doing at UCSF. Sure. So while I was doing my master's of music at the conservatory, um, I needed an income. So I went and did a postdoc mm -hmm. at U UCSF. They were extremely kind to um, allow me to be a part-time postdoc. Um, but because I was studying music and because I was really interested in creativity, one of the reasons I chose UCSF was because um, Dr. Bruce Miller, who's the head of the Memory and Aging Center there, was one of the pioneers in the sort of creativity world uh, within neurology. He, he had 
described these patients who lost their ability to communicate verbally um, through uh, what Kanye was describing earlier, either non-fluent aphasia or another disease called semantic dementia, where you lose concept concepts. Um, uh, your vocabulary, essentially. And they would develop these alternative ways of expressing themselves, often through art. Mm -hmm. And so there was this emergence, paradoxically, of artistic skills that came with neurodegeneration. And I really wanted to come and understand how that occurs, how that, you know, the brain is so plastic. How does this, you know, loss of one function lead to um, another one being developed? So uh, that's the work that I did. I, I really looked at um, patients that were, that had this semantic dementia, and, and wanted to see how they see the visual world because often these patients um, engage in very highly complex visual tasks like jigsaw puzzles and playing solitaire on the computer and counting coins and um, painting. So um, I did eye movement uh, studies looking at where their eyes look when they're looking at different um, pictures or doing a visual search task. Um, then I looked at the volumes of different parts of their brains um, to see whether I could find a part of the brain that sort of you know, was larger in, in patients that were better at these visual skills. Um, and so that was sort of the, we, we did find that paradoxically these patients were much better at finding a target amongst um, a series of distractors than their healthy counterparts, which was kind of amazing. So uh, one way in which you're hoping to bring your neuroscience knowledge to your music work is, is through this, this class at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, which you're hoping to teach. It sounds super interesting. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So it's a, it's a class called A Practical uh, Guide to the Musician's Brain. And my goal is really to take what we know uh, from the cognitive neuroscience of music and apply it to musical training um, of people who are highly motivated to improve their musical skills. So that would be at the Conservatory of Music. Um, I think it's time where, you know, the next step we have, that we have to take now in cognitive neuroscience is, is figuring out a way to take what we know about how the brain learns music and how it affects, how music affects the brain and apply it to the performance of music. And that's always been really one of my interests is how can what I know about the brain help me be a better performer. Um, so uh, the conservatory has very kindly allowed me to sort of use it as a laboratory <laughs> in which I can ask students to really think about the way they practice, um, knowing what we know about the basal ganglia and the different parts of the brain that are involved in learning and memory, um, and see if we can really tweak a way in which they practice and develop these skills um, to make them much more efficient and effective performers. And on the musical side, tell us a little bit about the these two marvelous sounding projects that you're working on. First Opera on Tap and the Vogue Collective. So because I'm a bit stubborn, um, I tend to not like waiting for opportunities to come to me. I like to create my own opportunities. And as the economy has really gone down in the States in the last few years, a lot of opera companies, um, which would be sort of, which would allow emerging singers to make their debuts, are closing all mm -hmm. over the country. It's 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 a uh, it's it's tragic, but in a way, it's it's opening the doors for completely new grassroots movements. And so um, in classical uh, music, there's been this kind of grassroots movement that started here in the Bay Area amongst chamber musicians. Classical Revolution. Classical Revolution. And in New York, um, Annie Ricci started Opera on Tap, mm -hmm. which was essentially the classical revolution of opera. So mm -hmm. it's um, uh, the idea is to provide singers uh, a form in which they can, you know, 
present their art um, and people can come in without having to pay a hundred dollars a ticket mm-hmm. uh, and and get into like a stuffy tuxedo and mm-hmm. so opera on tap i've created a chapter here in san francisco we perform at uh, cafe royale which is known as a venue for poetry and jazz mm-hmm. um, and we have had a you know a wonderful successful run now we perform there once a month and the idea is to give singers the opportunity to really perform often and get feedback from the audience and see what works and what doesn't and introduce the audience to something that maybe they wouldn't want to pay so much money to go see. And Vocalective, that's about vocal chamber music, which is an art form that uh, a lot of people think uh, isn't a very prominent art form, mostly because it gets so little airplay. Absolutely. So when people think, you know, vocal chamber music, they think, oh, there's a piano and a, and a diva with her, you know, holding a mouse in her hands in a very like <laughs> conservative way on a stage. And, um, you know, there's a real repertoire of chamber music. The problem is, is that most vocalists are solo band people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they don't have the opportunity to play with instrumentalists over and over and over again and develop the rapport that a really great band needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I decided that I needed to start a collective of instrumentalists and vocalists that wanted to work together consistently and often so that we can develop that kind of groove that you get um, within a band and do it with chamber music. So I started Vocalective and Vocalective is really focused um, not only on producing works of chamber music that are already established for The Voice, but also in commissioning um, and showcasing new works. Well, let's listen now to a track by Vocalective. Here's three fragments of Ibn Kafa Ja for voice, flute, guitar, violin and cello. And the composer is Mohamed Farouz. You're listening to Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman. Voicebox is available as a free weekly podcast via the Voicebox website at voicebox-media.org and also on iTunes under KALW Voicebox. We just heard a performance by Vocalective, the voice-led chamber music group helmed by one of my two guests for tonight's show, Indre Viscontas. The song was Three Fragments of Ibn Kafajar for voice, flute, guitar, violin and cello and the composer was Mohamed Fairuz. Indre is a neuroscientist affiliated with the University of California, San Francisco, and a classically trained soprano. Also joining us on the line from New York is Connie Tomeno, music therapist and head of the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function, a research and therapy center focusing on music and neuroscience. So, Connie, um, turning to you, how important do you think it is for someone working in your field to have a musical background? Um, and do you think these two sides need to be in balance, or is it possible to, to work in the field without having any kind of musical experience? Well, I hope the obvious answer is, is that music therapists need to be musical and mm-hmm. need to have a very strong music base. In fact, one of the essential competencies to be certified, to be board certified in music therapy is a proficient ability in music, um, knowledge of theory, uh, music history, as well as the ability to play on a variety of, of melodic instruments. So that's a given before somebody even 
goes into training in the clinical applications of music. And you can imagine if you're working with a client and if you want to use music as a way of framing their responses or responding to their natural responses, you need to be able to tweak that music in the moment to really grab them in Mm -hmm. and enhance how that therapy is going to go. So uh, it doesn't work to put a record on Mm -hmm. and expect something to happen. So the musical flexibility is really a key to being a good music therapist. Do you play any instruments or sing yourself? I do. Actually, I'm uh, I'm a professional trumpet player and play with several wind ensembles in the New York area Uh and um, played took accordion lessons as a, as a kid, and that's what you heard on yeah, one I've of seen, those tapes. I've seen some but pictures it was, of you It was because of my, I was a, a biology major, pre, pre-med student um, in college, but because I played trumpet in high school, wanted to take trumpet lessons at the university, and the only way I could do that was to become a music major, so I double majored for a while, and then found the field of music therapy. This was back in the mid-70s, so um, no neuroscience and music available back then. Um, (laughs) But it was because of my work in science and then working in music therapy that uh, the realization, at least to me back then, was was how important music and human function was, especially when I was working with people with dementia and neurologic diseases. And so my interest in science reinforced my interest in music as therapy and both of those fed into each other so I try to keep up my keyboard skills Mm -hmm. um, but I do play uh, trumpet professionally mostly uh, with classic wind ensembles. How important uh, to both of you is your music training for your neuroscience work and vice versa how does your neuroscience work impact the music that you make? Well it's, it's interesting. I think I think one informs the other. Mm-hmm. I think when you're passionate, I think, it, Andrea, you, you're the same. Um, when you're passionate about something, you want to delve into it more and more. And the more you learn and discover, the more you want to, the more questions you have, and the more you want to be able to answer those questions. I think I'm, I'm totally addicted to both fields. Um, and uh, constantly looking for answers and, and questions. I think also, Indra, you, you had mentioned something about using your knowledge of neuroscience to enhance your musicality and knowing how um, music affects function. And I think as a musician, a performing musician, knowing how important, for example, repetition is in uh, getting, uh, overcoming stage fright, for example. If, if you have something that's memorize so deeply that you're not thinking about what you're doing anymore, it actually helps you overcome uh, the types of problems you may have in performances. Same thing with pitch discrimination, another task. If you know where the problem is, you can enhance the recovery or enhancement uh, of your performance if you know how to retrain yourself. Anything you want to add, in, Indra? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes is that an, an amateur practices until they get it right, but a professional practices until they can't get it wrong. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I'm a fir- firm believer of the 10,000 hours and deliberate practice mm-hmm. um, work. And so that's definitely how neuroscience informs my practice, is mm-hmm. that it's very, you know, I, I really try to think about it and try to apply what I know. Um, and my musical background, I feel, gives me a, a view of the, the data that I collect um, and the studies that I design that maybe a lot of my colleagues, you know, haven't, haven't looked at it that way. It gives me sort of a different um, 
different way of posing the question and figuring out what questions are really important for me to answer. I thought we could uh, turn our attention now to look at a couple of, of interesting studies, things that you pointed me to, Indre, because I know you're an avid blogger and you're always on the lookout for interesting uh, things going on in the field to write about. Now, was this one blog post uh, that was very interesting, a piece that you wrote about the neurological reasons for why some kinds of music give us what, for want of a better word, we might call the chills. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So there, there have been a, a few people who have really tried to capture what it is about music that we love. You know, what, why does it become an obsession? Um, and some people say, well, it's because it gives you the chills, this sort of mm-hmm. divine, sublime experience that you get goosebumps on, on your body. And so people, have st- as the cog- cognitive neuroscience of music has, has grown, people have started to study this. And one of the first people to really look at it kind of um, by asking people to listen to music and seeing whether or not they got the chills um, was Jan Panksepp. Uh, who is an Estonian-born researcher in Washington State now. Um, And in 1995, he published this psychological study of people essentially listening to music and then sort of raising their hands or indicating whether or not they got the chills. Um, And he found that contrary to what we expect, it's actually sad music that Mm -hmm. tends to elicit this reaction more often than happy music. Hmm. Um, And that he he sort of came up with this idea that um, a lot of times what would elicited is, is this sort of solo line coming out of a cacophony of mm-hmm. other sounds. Um, so, for example, a guitar solo in a rock song or, um, you know, the voice coming through in an opera, a, sing- a solo voice. And so he thought that maybe this mimics a separation call or a distress call mm. and that it taps something very primitive in us that causes us to react that way. Um, and then when people have done neuroimaging studies, like, for example, there's a blood inzatory paper um, that came out where they looked at the neuro- imaging of, of this effect, and they did in, fi- did in fact find that when people were getting the chills, um, it was their emotional system, their or what we call the limbic system, which is kind of a, a reptilian or older part of the brain um, that gets engaged uh, versus when people are sort of, you know, listening for other aspects of the music, they become more cerebral, more cognitive. So there might be something to that. Well, let's listen now to a couple of examples of songs that, uh, that you gave as examples to me that create this chill effect. Here's Whitney Houston's version of Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You, followed by Osvaldo Golijov's Lua Descolorida, featuring Indre Viscontas on vocals. And I will always love you. Will always love you.
songs that set chills off in the brain. Whitney Houston's version of Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You and Osvaldo Golichov's Lua Descorodida featuring tonight's in-studio guest, neuroscientist and singer Indre Viscontas on vocals. This is Voicebox. I'm your host, Chloe Veltman. Check out our free weekly podcasts on iTunes and you can go to our website, voicebox-media.org to find out all kinds of information about the project. I'm in the studio with Indre for a discussion about the amazing link between the brain and singing. And we're also joined on the phone from New York by music therapist Connie Tomeno, who is director of the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function. So what would you say, Connie and Indre, are the biggest challenges facing your field right now? Well, in the field of music therapy, even though there's been many years of, of clinical studies, I think we're still being challenged to do the gold standard double-blind controlled studies in the field to show the efficacy of, of specific treatments to specific types of problems um, and also being able to tie in with the neuroscientists to again build some efficacy for validating the clinical work that we're doing so that's that's where we are today and I know many people are collaborating to overcome those obstacles so we can uh, make a case for music therapy as a treatment for many of these types of problems that we talked about and seeing how and when uh, we can increase either reimbursement or uh, recognition by insurance companies to pay for those treatments because many people who would like to take advantage of these services uh, are unable to. So um, it strikes me that, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's, you've got one challenge to get uh, enough buy-in from the medical community. But um, what about for people in general who are outside of the medical community? Because, I mean, one thing that's startling from all this research and its application is how magical it seems. I mean, getting people to talk again through singing seems like some kind of crazy miracle of biblical proportions, like Jesus giving sight to the blind or Lazarus coming back from the dead. What can be done to demystify this area of discovery for the general public? I think, um, like I said, being able to have more and more studies that show its efficacy, because even though people can sing, though they can't speak, uh, that ability will never carry over to recovery. Mm -hmm. And so... um, just having enough people trained to do the techniques and Mm -hmm. having the techniques available in many more areas will give people access to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other piece, I think, for the general public, um, for people to have access or uh, ability to use some of these techniques on their own and to know how to try things um, like singing to enhance their uh, speech is something that somebody could do on their own if they... um, if uh, they have a child who has trouble mm-hmm. speaking, but see that the child is singing along with uh, shows or with their iPod or whatever, to, to pick up on that and to realize that this may be a gateway to increased communication and to find either somebody in their local uh, school district that is a music therapist or, or go to the American Music Therapy Association to look for a music therapist in their area would be a way to gain access to those 
those treatments. Well, we've got time to talk about one more corner of neuroscientific research into music. Indra, you pointed me to this one weird and wonderful study by Diana Deutsch of the Department of Psychology at the University of California, San Diego, who we mentioned earlier in the show. So let's listen first to this short clip of someone's voice. Listeners, is the person in the clip speaking or singing? The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. But they sometimes behave so strangely. They sometimes behave so strangely. 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 So strangely. This is Voicebox. Check out our free weekly podcasts on iTunes by searching for KALW Voicebox and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Chloe Veltman and my guests in the studio for this evening's conversation about neuroscience and singing are Indre Viscontas and Connie Tomeno. What we heard was so strange. Was it singing or speaking or a bit of both? Before we make up our minds one way or the other, here's another quick clip. Listen out in particular for the words so strangely this time. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. Weird. Well, I don't know about any of you out there, but what I heard was, at least at the start, clearly the sound of someone speaking, not singing. But then when the phrase sometimes behave so strangely kept coming back, it sounded a lot like a phrase from a song. And then in the second clip, the person was chattering along until she got to the so strangely part, which suddenly popped out and sounded like the speaker had just broken into song. Freaky. Indra and Connie, can you tell us what's going on with our brains as we listen to these clips? Well, I think that what you're, you know, the repetition is the key here, and um, I think it's a it's a wonderful way to bring this program in a bit to a close because we started talking about the importance of repetition and music and timing and how that's such a key component of it, um, and so certainly it's with repetition that you start to hear the the prosody, the the sort of the intonation uh, of the speech, um, and it, yeah, and that's really it, it also underscores how closely speech and singing uh, are related. Connie, is there anything you'd like to add, perhaps, in, in how these kinds of findings might be applied to help people, if at all? Sure. I, I think the importance is gaining and appreciating our new understanding of how, how closely music, singing, and speech are connected and, um, and for people to um, really understand the importance of the research in these areas as opening up doors to understanding. Well, our time is sadly up for another week. I'd like to thank my illustrious guests, Indre Viscontas and Connie Tomeno, for participating in tonight's discussion. It's been an honour chatting with you both. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. And nice to meet you, Andre. You too. To find out more about the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function, please visit the organisation's website at imnf.org. And to find out more about the work of Indre Viscontas, please visit indreviscontas.com. And that's spelt I-N-D-R-E-V-I-S-K-O-N-T-A-S.com. 
Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. Our series producer is Seth Samuel and the web editor is Victoria Lim. Voicebox needs your support. To find out how you can make a tax-deductible donation to keep us on the air, please visit our website at voicebox-media.org. Donating is safe, easy and tax-deductible through our online PayPal link. Check out our free weekly podcast on iTunes and via voicebox-media.org. And also visit our homepage to mull over and respond to the question of the week. We love to know what you think of us, so friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and you can write to us anytime at info at voicebox-media.org. I'll play us out with a very appropriate song for tonight's topic. Here's Alice in Chains with Check My Brain. Have a songful week. <laughs>